class for the residue. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Today is January 1st, 2023, the first day of the new year. By God's immense grace, we now get to begin this new year, the day of rest and worship. I pray that the Lord will renew and invigorate us and honor and glorify himself in this hour. So with that said, let me pray for us and we'll dive into the text. Let's pray. Lord, our God, our Heavenly Father, you are an everlasting God, the sovereign King and ruler over all things. You are a, our gracious Savior who rescued us from darkness uh, of sin into the light of your son's righteousness. Oh Lord, we are very weak. We are very fleeting and fragile. Lord, because of, that's because of our sins. I pray that uh, this year you will help us remember Christ and the forgiveness that is abundant in his blood. I pray now that you will teach us and give us a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. I pray that you satisfy us in the morning and every morning and this morning with your steadfast love. Establish the works of our hands that we may be pleasing to you and fruitful for your kingdom, we pray. Amen. The first sermon of the year typically has the flavor of looking forward to and setting a tone for the new year in view. And typically the expectations for the new year are hopeful. Uh, and uh, glad, right? This past year, we had many joyful occasions. There were three weddings at this church, including my own. Sorry to Andy and Jen, you are no longer the last couple getting married. At what side? The crown comes here now, right? Which, which was over five years ago, their wedding. And God was pleased to bless some of you with newborn children, right? Sorry to Tessa Shores, Zachary Stevens, and Nico Langone. You are so loved, but uh, you are no longer the babies of the family. And above all, we ought to praise and thank God for his continual and incessant mercy to us by growing and maturing our church. Three members of our church, Godfrey, Gia, and Faith, were baptized, and the Tomlinsons alongside with them were added to our church membership. God was gracious to bring the Whitmans back to us from Italy, and they have since been a presence of service and hospitality to many. Right? The hope we have at the beginning of every year is always optimism and hopefulness. We all want this year to, to unfold with much joy, gladness, gain, and blessing. When we say to each other, we wish each other a happy new year, we truly and wholeheartedly mean that. We want this year of 2023 to be a year filled with happiness and rejoicing. And for some of you, if last year was any indication, uh, then you have good reasons to, to hope for a cheerful and blissful year. However, I would be too naive and unsympathetic to say that this was the case for everyone in this church. As the year was marked with joy for some, so it was engraved with sorrow and grief for others. Death, the king of terror, as in years past, claimed two members of our church, like Henry earlier mentioned, and also our loved ones, the memories of whom still vividly live in our minds. Some of you might be witnessing the decline of your health and or the health of someone you care for deeply. Work is as frustrating as ever, and relationships or the lack thereof are not getting any easier. So for some of you, if last year was any indication, then this year is not to be eagerly welcomed, but dreadfully avoided. But whether you desirously welcome and greet this year or try your best to not dread this new year, you are here. You are on the first day of this 365-day venture and enterprise, a slow revelation and clarification of God's providential will and care, unfolded one day at a time. There is no better time than this very first day of the year for us to set our minds on the Lord, to be comforted and strengthened, 
to be humbled uncorrected so that we may gain a heart of wisdom as we tread the path in which the Lord will lead us to go. And there's no better way to do that than turning to the word of God. Every year on my birthday and on the first day of the year, I would read and pray through the same psalm to remind myself that there is no need to dread and there is no point to daydream. Uh, This is the psalm uh, read at my wedding to remind me I am not to be here forever, as great as that day an institution of marriage is. And that's the psalm I want to meditate upon together with you this morning to give ourselves a wise, scriptural, and a godly perspective and mindset on this first day of the new year. So if you have the physical copy of the Bible with you, please turn to the 90th psalm. We'll be in verses 1 through 17, which you can find on page 496 of the Pew Bible. Psalm 90, verse 1 through 17. The 90th Psalm, verses 1 through 17. Let me read the text for you, and please pay close attention to every verse, because this is the word of God. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you have formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday when it is past. Whereas a watch in the night, You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on us, your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let the work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's begin with the title of the psalm. By title, I don't mean the ESV title from everlasting to everlasting, but rather the small font words underneath the ESV title. Some psalms have this title, others don't. Some titles are just the person who wrote that psalm. Some also include the tune of that psalm. Uh, remember, psalms are songs, so they had tunes for singing. But some psalms have even longer titles with uh, even more information. And when a psalm does have such a title, a longer title with more information, it is very important for us to consider it carefully because it will help us understand the psalm greatly. And that is the case with our psalm. The title says, look at the title. A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. This title has three parts, and each part tells us something crucial about this psalm. First of all, we know the nature and essence of this psalm. That is, it is a prayer. In other words, this psalm is meant to teach us what a God-honoring and soul-edifying prayer looks like. It tells us what components there should be in a prayer what attitude and motivation we ought to have uh, when, when we draw near and approach the throne of grace so that we may follow and imitate 
this example. Prayer is the chief means by which we communicate with God. I know some of you agonize over your prayers and your prayer life. You desperately want to grow and mature in prayer. Understanding and imitating prayers in the Bible, that really is the best way to learn how to pray. Now, this psalm is not only a prayer. The second part of this psalm, uh, the, this title, also tells us who prayed this prayer. That is, this is a psalm of Moses. The authorship of Moses tells us two things in particular. First and foremost, it convinces us why we should imitate this prayer at all. We don't imitate the prayers of just any random person, right? We should imitate this prayer because this is Moses' prayer. We imitate Moses' prayer because Moses is a man of humility and servitude, a man of zeal for the kingdom of God, for God's glory, a man of affliction, and sorrow, a man of endurance and perseverance, and a man of intercession and mediation. All of these things are crucial qualities for cultivating a prayerful person. Prayers are meaningless to the proud, boring to the lukewarm, routine for those who have never tasted sorrow, short-lived for those lacking perseverance, and self-centered for those uninterested intercession. But Moses lacked none of these qualities, and so he was a man of prayer, and so we should imitate him and his prayer. Now, secondly, the authorship of Moses also informs us the historical context of the psalm. That is, the sin and the punishment of Israel's wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. The picture you should have in your mind for this psalm is not David sitting in his palace, nor Solomon is in his royal robe on his wedding day, nor Asaph uh, directing the choir of the temple and leading the worship of the congregation of Israel. The picture you should have in mind here for this psalm is the barren and desolate wilderness in which a million Israelites had been living and walking for years. This is a condemned and wasted generation. They were the most infamous generation of Israel. And it is as if God had treated them as his enemies. God promised to give them a land, the land of Canaan as their, their possession, that led them all the way to the border of that promised land. God told them to go in, but they saw there were giants living in the land, and they were afraid, and they disbelieved God, his power, and his faithfulness. And as a consequence, they were condemned. This is also a fruitless and vain generation. This generation, they do not go out to sow and harvest. In the morning, they get up and they go out. They get manna from the ground. And then they get water from the heavens or wherever possible. They do nothing else. They don't plant. They don't water. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't harvest. This is also a generation, this is also a dying and perishing generation. They will die in that wilderness. They will never enter God's rest, even including Moses himself. And finally, this is not just a prayer. This is not just a prayer of Moses, but a prayer of Moses, the man of God. This perfectly summarizes the previous points I made. Man of God, pray. And prayers make men of God. We can therefore listen and learn from the prayer of a man of God. What is it that we can learn? Well, in the midst of a barren and disgraced people, a man of God is established to lead, to pray, and above all, to live a godly life in the face of endless trial and hardship. Can you imagine walking and wandering around in the fruitless, barren wilderness year after year? How should we live as children of light in the midst of a crooked generation when we ourselves are afflicted with many sorrows and troubles? Well, I want to draw your attention to three things from this psalm to answer this question. Three things that constitute a prayer pleasing to God. You can pray in the midst of trials, reflections, or joy and gladness in this new year. First of all, praise. 
The primary function of a prayer is to give God praises and thanks. The primary function of a prayer is to give God praises and thanks. So a God-honoring prayer begins with praise. And secondly, plea. Prayer is not a heartless and affectionless exercise. It is the offering of a hearty, tender, and affectionate plea to God in weakness and humility. It's not a formula. It's not formality. It's a hearty plea, affectionate plea to God. Lastly, petition. In prayer, we ask God for what he promised to give us. He is strong and kind. He gives freely and abundantly through prayer. So, so three simple things for you this morning. Praise, plea, and petition. So let's begin with point number one, praise. The book of Psalms is a collection of 150 psalms. And these 150 psalms are divided into five books. As you can see from uh, just above the ESV title, look at above the ESV title, it says book four. So the book of Psalms is not just one big collection of 150 Psalms. It is actually a combination of five collections of Psalms. And Psalm 90 is the first Psalm of book four, which contains Psalms 90 to, uh, through 106. Now you should know one thing about book four. Psalm, uh, for, uh, the f- book four of the Psalms focuses on the glorious character of God and his ruling authority over all things. The, char- the glorious character of God and his ruling authority over all things. There's a refrain repeated over and over again. Psalm 93.1, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. 95.3, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. 96.10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. 97.1, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. 99.1, the Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. The Lord reigns. Right? He is a ruling monarch over all things. And as a consequence, we, right, as the people of God, should listen to Psalm, uh, book four of the, psalm, uh, of the psalms. Psalms in book four urge God's people to come and worship him. Right? Because God is a ruling monarch, we come and worship him. Psalm 92, verse 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. 95.1, oh come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. 96.1, oh sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. 98.1, oh sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. 101, make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth, right? You get the point. And that's the first lesson we can learn about prayers. Our prayers should first exude with profuse praise and honor to our God. That's the primary function of a prayer, is to praise God. Before our prayers enter into the territories of pleas and petitions, let them linger in the domain of praise and worship to our God. And that's precisely what Moses did in our text. He began his prayer with praises to God. The lack of worship in our lives comes directly from a lack of knowledge, a meditation upon the nature and beauty of God. Right? You simply cannot honor or praise or exalt or worship something you do not know or love or treasure. Moses knew his God. Moses, therefore, praised his God. So so let's take a look at the text and see what Moses knew about his God. And maybe we can follow his example in glorifying our God accordingly. First of all, the Lord God is an everlasting God. Verse 2. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In theology, this is typically called the eternity or the eternality of God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God's eternity doesn't exactly mean uh, that he lives forever. It's a consequence. It's an implication of that, but it's not exactly what it means. 
Uh, it, rather, it means he is altogether beyond and outside of time and all its constraints. You see, we are bound by time. We're measured by time. You see it on tombstones, Jonathan Edwards, 1703 to 1758. He is measured by time. You see it when you celebrate birthdays. We just celebrated Rick's birthday a few weeks back. He is 35 years old. You see it when you travel. It takes three hours and 47 minutes to drive from Boston to New York. My wife drives fast, but it took us three hours and 40 minutes to drive back. We are bound by Time right now, as I will be speaking for the next sixty minutes, we are that's that's a joke. No, <laughs> I will not be speaking for.、Uh, oh, we are creatures bound by time, but it's not so with God.、Uh, time is not a dimension in the existence of God. From everlasting to everlasting, He is God. From everlasting, that is, He was before everything was made. To everlasting, that is, God will be after everything perishes. Therefore, your application is this: there is such a thing as eternity, and every last one of us will be part of it. So be mindful of it. Do not let anything in this world distract you from eternity. Think carefully about where you want to spend your eternity. Whether in heaven or hell, in joy or misery, and be speedily reconciled to God. We'll talk about how in a moment, but for now, do not scoff at the idea of eternity, because it is true. He is not slow in fulfilling his words. Verse four: For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, or as a watch. In the night, he is patiently waiting for your repentance. Now, God as an everlasting God implies that He is self-sufficient. Verse two, look at verse two. Before mountains were brought forth, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So, so God was before anything was made. That's to say, He needed nothing to exist. He needed nothing to be. His existence was and is and forever will be independent from any created thing, and therefore we can trust. We can we can rely on him. We can trust in him. The creatures relying on the creator. God as an everlasting God implies that he is immutable or unchangeable. Verse two, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. If God changes his nature and his character, then it, will, it could not have been said he is God, the same God, the one and only God from everlasting to everlasting. That he will be from God from everlasting to、uh, 2023.、Right? But no, he is the everlasting God from everlasting to everlasting. He doesn't change. And if that's the case, then we can trust that his goodwill. And his great grace toward us in Jesus Christ will never change. He doesn't change his mind in saving you. You sin, you continue to sin this year, but he doesn't change his mind that you are one of his, that he saves you. A God as an everlasting God also implies that he is the maker of all things. If God alone was before anything was made. Who else could it be other than God to have created the heavens and the earth and everything in it? It must have been God, right? And so we can look to God to supply every need of ours according to His riches of glory in Christ Jesus. Like He created everything, He supplies everything for us. Every good thing comes from Him. God is an everlasting God. So, brothers, praise Him. Secondly, we also see in this prayer that God is a sovereign God. God is a sovereign God. A disclosure: I am about to say some very sobering and serious things. But everything I say, as far as I can possibly see, is true and scriptural. I hope you could be attentive and think about these things. God is sovereign, by which I mean God is always in control. 
He actively decreed and designed everything, and he is right now actively bringing about his decree and his design everywhere, all the time. Right? What is the scope of this sovereignty? How broad is is his sovereignty applied? Well, the short answer is everything. Right? Everything, everywhere, all at once. Right? God is sovereign over the history of mankind. Isaiah 60, uh, 46, 9. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. So he is sovereign over everything in human history. Uh, God is sovereign over the rise and fall of the nations. Romans 9, 17, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. What purpose? That I may show my power in you. He rose just to fall, just to show God's power. God is sovereign over the works of salvation. Acts 2, 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The death of Jesus is according to the definitive plan of God. And God is sovereign over even the most trivial little details and outcomes of our lives. Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but his every decision is from the Lord. Right, so the reason why I lost board game to my wife is because of the Lord's sovereignty. Right, and just the dice didn't come my way. Well, God is sovereign over everything. But for our purpose this morning, I, I only want to emphasize one thing, one way in which God is sovereign. Verse three. Look at verse three. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. That is, God is sovereign over our life and death. God is sovereign over our life and death. There's one person who knew when we would be born and when we will die. And and spoiler alert, it's not Tabitha. It's not our doctors. One person who knows it, that's God. He decreed the spans of our lives and our existence is held in his hands. When he says return to the dust, there's absolutely nothing we can do to stop it. The reason why you live to see another year, the reason why you are sitting here to hear the preaching of God's word, the reason why you have strength in your body and life in your souls right now is not because you have carefully avoided death in 2022. You did but because ultimately God had decreed and ordained that you will live to see another year. Men in their ignorance and foolishness and pride are most apt to overlook and neglect this fact. Thus, such insolence opens doors to all kinds of follies, anxiety, fear, pride, arrogance, thinking and living as if you will live here forever in gratitude and unthankfulness to God. The sovereignty of God is the most humbling doctrine to dispel pride and instill sober-mindedness. It is also the most comforting doctrine to bring hope in the face of the most painful afflictions and the most encouraging doctrine to impart strength, to endure the hardest trials, to wait for desires to be fulfilled. For the simple reason that God is good. And God also has ordained this affliction. So then it is necessarily true that the good God will do me good in the midst of and through his afflictions. And God will lead me through this affliction by his goodness and faithfulness. God is a sovereign God, brothers. So praise him. And finally, God is an everlasting God, a sovereign God. He is also a gracious God. Verse 1. Look at verse 1. Moses is going to say a lot more hard truths, but he begins his prayer with this. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. What does that mean? Dwelling place. We live in God. What does that mean? Our dwelling place is a place of security. Right, remember the, the context of this psalm. 
The Israelites had no security in the wilderness. They had no army. They had no fortified city. They had enemies and they had barrenness all around them. But the Lord was their pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. Uh, they, they, they were with the Lord and they were safe. Our dwelling place is also a place of comfort, rest, and renewal. Like you, you work for the whole day, and then you're tired, exhausted. You take the train, where do you go? Not to a hotel, not to the church. You go back to your house. That's a place of renewal, comfort, and rest. Right? The Israelites had no rest. Right? They, they wandered and they wasted away in tents in, in, water, in the wilderness. They ate manna day after day. They had no lasting or permanent home. But the Lord was in their midst. Uh, he provided and he sustained for them. Uh, he was their bounty and he was their abundance. The Lord is not only just a dwelling place. Look at that verse again. The Lord, he is a dwelling place, verse 1, in all generations. In other words, not just for this generation of wandering Israelites, but he was a dwelling place for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because they also had no lasting place to dwell. They lived in tents, and they also moved about. They had no permanent home. But the Lord was with them as their dwelling place. They wandered about, but they were at home with the Lord. Now, translate this to, to us Christians. What does that mean? You know, that's for the Israelites. What does that mean for us? Well, for us Christians, it means this. First, we're called to long for an everlasting dwelling place with God. We, we should long for dwelling with God. God as our dwelling forever. We are very much in a spiritual wilderness in this world. Uh, that's why Peter, the apostle Peter, called us the elect exiles. We're not home. Right? And that's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 8, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The Lord is our home. This world is not our everlasting dwelling. This world does not bring eternal joy and satisfaction. We're very much like the patriarchs, away from sweet rest in the Lord. But, Hebrews eleven sixteen, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Brothers, Christ has gone before us to prepare a place for us in our Father's house. So long for your eternal dwelling in heaven. Now, it also means this, uh, to God is our dwelling place. It means this, this year you will encounter fruitlessness, disappointments, a restlessness. Parents, there will be days uh, on which you find your, uh, your parenting, you feel your parenting has utterly failed and is completely ineffective. Uh, workers, there will be days this year you find your, your work is draining to the body and wearisome to the soul. Brothers, there will be days uh, you question whether your pursuit of holiness your service to the saints, your labor of love and your prayer for the lost and your evangelism, whether any of these things is bearing any fruit in any way. Sisters, there will be days you find yourself sorely afflicted, bitterly tried, and painfully troubled. This year, you will be tempted. This year, you will sin. And this year, you will be grieved and disappointed. You will feel pain, exhaustion, and you invest much of yourself and gain nothing in return. What, what to do then? Well, here is a man who has experienced everything you will experience in that dreadful wilderness. Not just for a year, two years, for 40 years. He said, O oh Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. He took it to the Lord and he rested in him. Right? Jesus' words still ring true today. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? God is gracious, brothers. Therefore, praise him. Now, 
The rest of Psalm 90 is based on the sovereignty and the graciousness of God. Right? We talk about everlasting God, sovereign God, gracious God. So the rest of the psalm will be based on the, the, the last two ideas, sovereignty and graciousness. God being sovereign over our life and death motivates us to plead with him. God being gracious encourages us to boldly offer our petitions to him. Plea is a response to our misery and death. But petition is a response to God's grace and mercy. So keep this in mind as we move forward to point number two, plea. Moses' plea consists of two things. The life of man and the wrath of God. The life of man and the wrath of God. These two ideas are interwoven with each other throughout verses 5 through 11, but let me disentangle them a little bit and consider them with you separately one by one. Right? So first, the life of man. I'll point out three things about the life of man from this psalm, from this text. I'm speaking to you nothing but common sense. They're, they're completely true from empirical data and just simple observations about humanity. Uh, you know them all. Uh, you have experienced them all. You have seen them all. You have witnessed them all. But I'm sure you rarely consider them uh, or consider these things often uh, and take them seriously uh, for a simple reason uh, that these three things are not the most pleasant matters to, to think about. Uh, it's precisely these seemingly unpleasant things that would give us hearts of wisdom, humble us before God, and eventually lead us to enduring joy and happiness. Have you, have you wondered why most people are not joyful and most people are not wise? Well, probably because these three things are rarely considered or taken to heart. So every wise heart dwells on these three things about our lives. First of all, number one, the life of man is weak and feeble. The life of man is weak and feeble. Verse 5. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. Men's lives are compared to not fortified cities and citadels. Men's lives are compared to dreams and grass, fragile and destroyed. The scriptures elsewhere use the same metaphors. Job 20, verse 8. He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. Human life is like a dream. Uh, Isaiah 40, verse 6. All flesh is grass, and is, all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers the flower phase when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Human life is like grass. Right? Now, just how fragile, exactly how fragile are we? Well, very much in, in every way. Right? Our bodies are subject to many great diseases, cancer, strokes, heart attacks, and the least injury could inflict great pain and weakening upon the body, or virus, uh, allergy, bug bites, cold weather, lifting too much weight at the gym. Right? Not only our bodies, but also our minds. They're easily disturbed and plunged into anxiety and vexation. And above all, our souls, the essence of our being and nature, are frequently under the attack and assault of Satan, the temptation and the pleasures of sin, and the lure and the ease of this world. Our lives are weak. A feeble, fragile, and frail. Now, the life of a man is also not only frail and fragile, but also short of fleeting. Verse 6. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Verse 10. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. We're compared to grass and dreams. Well, these things simply, not simply because we're weak, but also because like dreams that last but a few minutes or, or hours, and grass that endures but a season, our lives are transient and momentary. Now, both the frailty and the fleetingness of man's lives 
show us the stark contrast between God and man. Well, God created all things by his might, power, and wisdom. Man is but mere mortals made from the dust. Whereas God is, is from everlasting to everlasting, the time of a man's years is but 70 and 80. Moses is very, uh, you know, purposeful in putting God a man, describing God a man in complete opposite ways. So, so, so the application here is very straightforward. We are not God. We're not God. We should not think of ourselves as God or worship ourselves like God. Uh, our purpose, the purpose of our existence and the meaning of our lives do not revolve around us, but around God. You live as if you are God. Well, how, how have we done that, right? You live as if you are God whenever you willfully sin against him and his word. I'm in charge. I'm God. I do whatever I want. Or whenever you seek your own pleasures and your lusts. Whenever you ignore him and neglect private devotion and public worship, it's as if God has not commanded us these things, as if God has not deserved this worship from us, and we will hold it to ourselves. Whenever you think lightly of eternity and are obsessed with this world, you're saying, I'm going to live here forever. We're not God. And the most foolish thing we can ever do is to live like we are. Now, let, let me address the older saints, uh, older people in this congregation specifically right now, whether you are in Christ or not. You're probably right now experiencing the frailty and the weaknesses of your bodies. You're not as strong, not as young as you were. Time is not very kind to any of us. If you are in Christ this morning, I, I want to lovingly encourage you, and I want to encourage you with God's word. 2 Corinthians 4.16 So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond measure. Psalm 73.26 My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Look at the gray hair, which is the crown of glory for you. You're advanced in years, but you're also advanced in the faith, in your love for the Lord. Praise God for his continual grace for you. May this promise give you timely comfort, as sweet in your soul in your old age. But if you are apart from Christ this morning, as an older person, I have a solemn warning to you. A warning worth life and death eternal. Your life is short, and it is of even greater and ever-growing urgency that you must be right with God. It is more likely that you will meet your maker and judge sooner uh, than when you were younger, and when the younger saints, younger people in this place. Let not this year go by. I say, let not this day go by before you are reconciled to God. Now, to the younger people in this assembly today, including the children and teenagers here, if you're also watching online, you must know that even though now you enjoy health and strength in the body, even though you expect many more years on earth, you are walking upon the brink of eternity as any other man. Your life is equally fragile and fleeting. Many young men are apt to think and make the mistake that judgment and eternity are far from them and they think little of life and death. May this not be said of any one of you when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that you have wasted away your youth on triviality and you have neglected your soul. Now, the life of a man is feeble and fleeting. The life of a man is finally full of toiling and trouble. That's the third thing about the life of a man, full of toiling and trouble. This one is for all of you who are in the workforce. Right? Verse 10. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, the fleetingness of our lives. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. 
This is the most basic and undeniable fact of the human life. We are made to work. A life is full of toil. We, we all heartily agree with Job. Has not man a heart service on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired hand? Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. Our toiling is fruitless. Genesis 3.18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So in other words, you, you go out to sow early in the morning, right? You get up and you, you, know, you do a morning routine and you're half awake and you leave the house. You go out to sow early in the morning and you come home late at night, but you get nothing in return. Right? You put in the work, but you just don't reap the proportional reward. Well, this, is, this was true in middle school when I could never outscore the best student in my class, no matter how, I, how hard I studied. Uh, this is true when I do research, I stare at the whiteboard for hours without a clue. Uh, this is true when I evangelize and sinners hear the gospel and they harden their hearts against Christ. This is true when I give counsel and are sensible of the weaknesses of my words and wisdom. This is true as I preach now. Right? We toil much and we reap little. Our toiling is frustrating. Ecclesiastes 2.23, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Does this verse not describe every working man? Right? You work hard during the day and then you bring work home. You bring work to the weekend and you bring work to sleep. You wonder whether your supervisor is pleased with you, whether your coworkers think well of you, whether you are getting that uh, thick bonus at the end of the year. Your work makes you anxious, and you didn't sleep well, and then you woke up late, and you couldn't read or pray, and then you felt terrible about skipping devotional, and you became even more anxious. You, you worry about keeping your job or finding a job in this down market. Work is frustrating. We toil much, and with much toil comes much vexation. Our toiling is fruitless, frustrating. It's also forever. Genesis 3.17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Your toil does not end. I cannot predict the future, but I don't know what God's providential will and care for you is this, uh, in 2023, but, but this I do know. Most of you had a year of toiling in 2022, and you will have another year of, toil, of fruitless and frustrating toiling in 2023. We toil much, we'll continue to toil to the end of our lives. And that's the first plea in Moses, uh, first idea in Moses' plea. Our fragile and fleeting life is filled with toil and trouble year after year. Why? Have you paused and wondered why it is so? How have our lives become like this? Well, the answer is found in the second idea in Moses' plea. Notice the repetition. This is stunning. Verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. In your wrath were dismayed. Verse 9, for all our days pass under your wrath. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Why is God so angry? Is he really this irritable, grumpy, and ill-tempered deity? Why, why is he angry? Verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of of your presence. In other words, the answer to our misery and life and pain and death problem is God's wrath and man's sin. Let me be clear on this. This, there's, this is a very caveat, important caveat to remember. Not all misery and fruitless toiling is a direct result from particular sins. There is no one-to-one -one correspondence between every sin and every judgment. The story of Job is about this very point, that God does not play tit-for-tat or carrot and stick with us all the time. But to understand how we got ourselves in this mess of fragility and fleetingness, we have to come back to the idea of sin, wrath, and death. 
Sin leads to suffering. A sin is a willful disobedience to God's command, a rebellion against His authority. God says, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbors as yourselves." Uh, but we say, "Oh no, we shall love myself、uh, with all my heart and love myself above my neighbors."、Uh, now, because we live in God's world, rebelling against Him is never a good and wise idea. It often leads to suffering, pain, and misery, and all of our sufferings in this life will end and culminate in the great suffering of death. Death is the greatest manifestation of God's wrath and displeasure toward men for their sins. The wages of sin is is death. On the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. My soul, the soul that sins, shall die for his sins. You may consider yourself a, a, a very good and a moral person today. You do not murder. You do not steal. You, you are cordial with everyone, and you help the needy. But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in words, deeds, thoughts, and desires. You know why that's true. You know how I know that's true, because you and I, we have very fragile and fleeting lives, filled with toil. The fact that our lives are short, our days are full of trouble and misery, is the very proof of sins. Otherwise, how would you explain the mess we found ourselves in? Now you'll be justified to ask. Well, our sins lead to God's wrath and our eternal death. What, what solution do you offer? And that's a little grim. What, what solution do you offer? Well, friends, I offer you the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel today.、Uh, pay attention. This is, pay pay close attention because this is the best part of the sermon. If you get anything from the sermon, get this: you see, God is is offended and displeased by our sins. But that hatred toward sin does not eliminate his his love and mercy for us. He who is rich in mercy gave his son Jesus Christ to us.、Uh, he took on flesh, assumed the human nature, and lived in the world just like you and me. But unlike you and me, he never sinned. God said, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and love your neighbors as yourself." He did it. He did it perfectly. Jesus always loved God and always loved his neighbors. He was tempted in every way we are, but he was without sin. He was perfectly right with God, and he then took our sins and rebellion against God upon himself, and he died on that cross. On the cross, he suffered and endured the wrath of God—the wrath of God Moses spoke about in this psalm, in this very psalm against us, rightfully against our sins. He he took our place. He paid the death penalty we deserved, and he brought forgiveness and pardon. He cl- brought cleansing for our souls, so that we may not die in our own sins for our own iniquities and transgressions and evil deeds. Jesus has died for His people to free them from the power and guilt of sin. On the third day after His burial, Jesus rose triumphantly from the grave, defeating death and conquering sin. This is now proclaimed to all the nations, so that all may know: whoever will repent and trust in Jesus alone will receive His rightness and right standing with God, and He will be raised. To eternal life on that last day, I have pressed you several times in this sermon to be right with God. This is how to be right with God: turn away from your sins, plead with God to deliver you from your wickedness, and trust in the finished work of Jesus in His life, death, and resurrection. The gospel is of first importance to your souls. Let not your soul rest. Until it finds its rest and salvation in Jesus. To the believers here, I say this: pray. In this year, you will find yourselves experiencing trials and tests, troubles and toiling. Plead with God. Describe to Him your poor and miserable condition. Tell Him how much you are grieved and afflicted. Expect Him to answer you with wisdom and comfort through His Word. Plead with God. In your prayer, because that's what Moses, the man of God, did. Plead with your heavenly Father, and you can expect an answer 
from his word. Point number three, petition. Let me quickly run through four petitions Moses presented to God in verses 12 through 17. 12 through 17. Four petitions. And now mainly focus on the believers here today. If you are apart from Christ, I leave you with the exhortation and encouragement to repent and believe. Here is a man of God, Moses, but I offer you Christ Jesus, the man of God, the God-man. So for believers, I encourage you to consider these four petitions. Petition number one, teach us and cause us to learn. Teach us and cause us to learn. Verse 13, so teach us. We human beings have figured out so many things. We know how to send rockets into the sky, how to cure one's deadly diseases, how to build bridges and tunnels. Every time I go through a tunnel, I'm amazed. How can you build a tunnel under the under the water? I'm an economist. I know nothing. I don't know how you build a tunnel. That's amazing. But we are so profoundly ignorant of the things of God. We need God to teach us through his word. And one particular thing we need to learn is verse 2. There are many things we need to learn. Verse 2. Verse 12, particularly. So teach us to number our days. For Moses and his generation, there were literally numbering 40 years in the wilderness. Their end is definite and sure. In the same way, we need to be taught that we are not to live here forever. And what that means to us spiritually and eternally. And verse 12 is saying, if we do, if we, we do number our days well, then we truly have a heart of wisdom. Right? My wife and I went to a Boston Harbor Hotel as, as part of our honeymoon. We got room service, breakfast, and dinner. We used their gym. We overlooked the Boston Harbor but we were, we were very glad and thankful for our stay, but it would be utterly foolish for us to think we could live there forever. In the same way, it would be utterly foolish for any of us to think this is our home and we get to be here forever. The earth is really just a longer hotel stay. Brothers, pray to God that he will teach you to number your days, to live well, is to prepare to die well. To, to have death in view, to prepare for it, is to live well and wisely. Petition number two, return to us. Verse 13, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. For Moses, God was going to desert and, and destroy Israel because of their, their sins and rebellion. After Mount Sinai, Exodus 33, verse three, I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And then Moses prayed. What's the result of his prayer? Deuteronomy 131. In the wilderness, you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son all the way that you went. God returns when his people pray that he will return. Right? Translated to us Christians, what does that mean? God will never forsake us for our sins because we have a Moses-like figure to intercede for us in our sins. But unlike Moses, Jesus intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father forever. He never fails. However, this does not mean we will not experience desertion for reasons other than sin. Right? You, you walk through a wilderness here in this world. You will be tempted to think God has forsaken you uh, in many moments of your lives. When, when you sin, a habitual sin, when you are afflicted and find no comfort in anything, when you pray day and night uh, and, and receive no relief, when you feel pain and agony in the body, what, what, what do you do then? What, what, what do you do when you are deserted, when you are sensible of desertion? Well, pray still. Well, it's of no use to, to wallow. It's of no benefit to bitterly complain. Wallowing and complaining only further exacerbates the soul and debilitates the hearts. I've now seen one man, uh, one man in affliction delivered and comforted by complaining and, and wallowing. They only prolong their suffering and grief. Pray. Pray that God will return to you and make his presence sensible to you and show his pity and mercy to you. Right? Spurgeon once said this in the sermon. Listen to this. 
Quite involuntarily, unhappiness of mind, depression of spirit, and sorrow of heart will come upon you. You may be without reason for grief, and yet may become among the most unhappy of men. What did Spurgeon do? He prayed. He prayed this prayer. Thou art my father, and I am thy child. And thou as a father art tender and full of mercy. I cannot bear to see my own child suffer as thou makest me suffer. And if I saw him tormented as I am now, I would do what I could to help him and put my arms under him to sustain him. Wilt thou hide thy face from me, my father? Wilt thou still lay on me thy heavy hand and not give me a smile from thy countenance? Brethren, pray when, when you are deserted. Uh, return, O Lord, to us. Have pity on us. Petition number three, satisfy and gladden us. Satisfy and gladden us. Verse 14, satisfy us. Verse 15, make us glad. For Moses and Israel, they had no shelter and no rest. They walked through the barren land with no respite. They were not satisfied. They had nothing to be satisfied with. In the same way, we are restless and afflicted. Even our relief and comfort are short-lived. Wine gladdens the heart, but wine cannot be consumed excessively without detriment to our flesh and soul. Fellowship and friendship uh, rejoice the soul. Two are better than one. But our most treasured companions will not always be present or even understand us. Earthly pleasures make us happy. Eat and drink and be merry, right? Uh, but these pleasures are very fleeting as well. We are all looking for something more. And in fact, the word satisfy here in Hebrew literally means overflowing abundance, excess and su surplus, something that will never run dry or vanish. What is something that will never run dry and will make us as glad as many days and years as he has afflicted us and as we have seen evil? What's the secret to enduring happiness uh, that we all seek? Verse 14, it tells you, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. John 4, 14, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Jesus satisfies us with God's steadfast love. Jesus satisfies us by delivering us from that which cannot satisfy us, which is sin, Jesus satisfies us by delivering us from, uh, from our evil and wickedness. He ensured our eternal life and joy. Even if all else fails, we still have a sure and bright future, eternity. Jesus satisfies us by bringing us to God and giving us the true spiritual knowledge and communion with God. You will be very happy if you know God. A godly man is a happy man. Brethren, pray that God will satisfy you in this year with his steadfast love in Jesus Christ. Finally, petition four. Establish the works of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. Verse 17. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You see, the problem for Moses is that nothing grows and it flourishes in the wilderness where he was. That, that makes Moses' petition here all the more fitting and remarkable. Uh, does the labor of your hands seem vain and fruitless? Do you want to be fruitful in the things of God, in your service to the church, in your labor for your family, and your toil at your workplace? Uh, what should you do when your work is futile, frustrating, and forever? Brethren, pray. Pray that he will not uh, he, will, he will be pleased to glorify him, himself through the labor of your hands. Pray that he will not dismiss the feeble, feeble efforts of your endeavor. Pray that he will establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of your hands. Brethren, may you advance in the faith and further your trust in the gospel this year. May you gain a heart of wisdom and praise to our God this year. May you remember to plead with him and pray for the blessings he readily bestows upon you in his word this year. Let's pray. Lord, you are a everlasting God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You alone are God. You are sovereign Lord and King. You are sovereign over our life and death. 
You are a gracious ruler. You do not rule by an iron rod. You rule by your grace and your steadfast love. Lord, we are very weak and feeble. We vanish very quickly. We'll die soon. We'll be found no more. But Lord, this is our hope that Christ has died for our sins so that we may believe in him and have eternal life. Though we die, yet shall we live. I pray that this year, as we go through many wildernesses and many trials and troubles, we'll look to you and we will pray. Lord, satisfy us this year in the morning and every morning with your steadfast love. Make us glad, even if we have seen evil, even if we will see evil. Make our hearts glad for as many days as you will afflict us. I pray that you establish the works of our hands, that we may be fruitful in every way at, at our homes, at our workplaces, especially in your church. I pray that you will shine the light of your countenance upon us and bless us as we enter into this new year. Further us in the gospel and faith in your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.